On behalf of the Barton Clinton Gordy Committee, we extend to you a very warm welcome. We're so glad you're here, and uh, I know that uh, many of you are members of this congregation, but we also know there are people that are part of this community and make attending this lecture series every year part of their calendar. We really appreciate you being here, and please know you're welcome, and we're just glad to have uh, this great crowd here and to have you all with us. Uh, we always uh, want to give some thanks out. I know some of those that are here every time may get a little tired of that, but there's some thanks that deserve uh, to be giving. And it begins with the three uh, families that have so generously given financially to this series that allow us to have it every year. And those were the families of uh, Dr. and Mrs. L.S. Barton and Dr. and Mrs. Fred Clinton and I.V. and Bona Gordy. And we're very thankful every year for, uh, for what they've done to allow us to have this series, which is in its 50th year, and it's really an outstanding lecture series that's uh, known throughout the country and a great list of uh, presenters. We also give thanks to our, our choir. What a great uh, addition the music is to this lecture series. Uh, Joel and Susan uh, make great effort to pick out hymns and songs that will that will be uh, part of this, uh, what, the, what the presenter has to give. I worry about Susan, you know, going back. We need to get like a jet pack or something for her, I think. <laughs> I swear there's some Sunday she's doing a bell choir and, and the piano and the organ, and I don't know how she gets to where she has to be. But Joel and Susan do a great job, and the choir is outstanding, and we greatly appreciate them. Uh, we give thanks to all our associate ministers uh, and to Brenda Reed and the whole staff of the church. Uh, obviously, the evening presentations are the part of this that most of you see, but there are things going on all day each of the three days, and the staff of the church uh, are the ones that really make that happen, and I know that make our presenters and our guests always feel comfortable, and we give thanks to the staff of the church for all that they do. Thanks to the Maranatha and, and Horizon Sunday School classes, uh, the Maranatha class tonight for the chili supper and Horizon uh, tomorrow night, the, the spaghetti supper, they work really hard on those. And, again, that makes for a complete evening for those of you that had a chance to partake in the chili tonight and spaghetti tomorrow. Uh, and thanks to the other committee members, Phil and Marilyn Keeter. Marilyn's here and Terry and Pam Carter and my wife, Nancy. Uh, we're thankful for the work that the committee does. Uh, I think Nancy and I have been on this committee for 15 years or more, and I, 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 I'm sure that from the very first time that we – uh, met with Dr. Biggs. Every year he meets with us and has a list of five or six people that he would like to consider uh, asking two years out to come and be a part of the series. I know from the very beginning the name Dr. Walter Brueggemann was one that he suggested. He uh, has been wanting to have our presenter here and, and I think asked him in the past and Dr. Brueggemann was so committed to his teaching responsibilities that he said I'd really like to come but I, I can't be away for the two uh, days of the presentation and the travel day from my classes. So, uh, but uh, Dr. Biggs said he'd stay with it. And as we all know, if Dr. Biggs is determined to make something happen, it's going to happen. And uh, sure enough, it's really exciting that it's on the 50th year of this great, great series. Uh, Dr. Biggs has told us, as he's talked about this series for the past few weeks, that Dr. Brugman is probably the most taught and read and discussed author in the mainline seminaries in the United States. Uh, he has written more than 60 books. Uh, he's an ordained minister of the United Church of Christ, an a graduate of Elmhurst College. Uh, he spent a bunch of time in St. Louis and most recently was the professor of Old Testament for 17 years at the Columbia Theological Seminary in Decatur, Georgia. He received a, a really outstanding honor, the Distinguished Alumnus Honor from Union Theological Seminary. 
Uh, I'd like to, uh, I think you, you realize you've got a really famous person. In, in my day, if you, if you had to do a report on or introduce somebody, you'd go to Encyclopedia Britannica or a World Book. Well, now it's, you Google them up on the Internet. And, uh, and if you find somebody that's got their own Wikipedia page, you know you've really got somebody uh, important. <laughs> and so there are a lot of nice things written and said about our presenter. But I'd like to, I'd like to just share with you a few comments. Uh, Mark Thiessen Nation, who is the program director at the London Mennonite Center in London, England, made these comments about our presenter. No one writing on the Bible is more consistently provocative, interesting, challenging, and imaginative than Walter Brueggemann. He goes on to say, for those Christians who yearn for serious, biblically informed engagement with our contemporary world, there is no one more stimulating to read than Brueggemann. And finally, I would go so far to say if there is any one author every preacher should have in his or her library, it should be Walter Brueggemann. Any preacher who does not use Brueggemann as a companion in preparation of sermons is cheating himself or herself and their respective congregations. We're really honored to have him here. And uh, despite all those nice things that are written and said about him, I, I know from spending some time with him that I think the thing he would most like for us to get out of these three days is that we'll listen carefully to what he has to say, that we'll think about it, and will mean something to us, and it might change what we, the, the way we do some things. And I know, I'm confident, that when you leave here tonight, you will be pleased that you spent Monday night here for the Monday night session of the 50th in this great lecture series at Boston Avenue Church and the presentation given by our special guest, the Reverend Dr. Walter Brueggemann. Well, I'm glad to uh, get this time with you again to think about our faith and how it may be uh, that the Bible connects with uh, the issues we face in our own faith and life. And I am sure you will remember vividly from last night. You've probably thought of nothing since we were together last night that I said the dominant theology of food in our society is about anxiety and scarcity and accumulation and monopoly and violence. So here's the news. The news in the gospel is that there is an alternative that we move from scarcity to abundance, from anxiety to trust, from accumulation to sharing, from monopoly to generosity, and from violence to peacemaking. The gospel is always another way. And I believe that the great issue of Lent is how we shall, all of us each as we are able, move our lives from the theology of greed, scarcity, and anxiety to a theology of abundance and trust and gratitude and generosity. So what I want to do tonight is, first of all, to talk about the, what I think are the theological foundations of a theology of abundance, and then line out how that theology works itself through the Bible with an eye on how we as the church live out that theology of abundance. This will be some pretty obvious things I say to you, but a theology of abundance is grounded in creation faith. It is grounded in the conviction that the world belongs to God, is blessed by God, 
is supervised by God and is summoned by God. Now, it's too bad that creation has been caught up in questions like science and religion or creationism and evolution, because that's not what creation is about in the Bible. Creation in the Bible is about the conviction that the world is not a closed, autonomous system, but that it is an open vehicle for God's generosity so that the world is not a zero-sum system. But you can tell when the grass grows and spring comes and the weeds spring out that creation is a gift that keeps on giving. So creation is not something that happened at the beginning of the Bible or at the beginning of human history in 4004 or whatever we say. But creation is a gifting of God that happens every day, all days, because it is a vehicle for God's way in the world. And as you know, in Genesis 1, there are two great gifts that God gives to the world. First of all, he, God blesses the animals and the plants and all living creatures. To bless means to infuse with life force so that God has infused into the earth the readiness to keep giving gifts of food. And the second thing is that God has commanded all creatures to be fruitful and give and give and give. And that means that we are on the receiving end of God's good gift of creation. And I have come to think that the proper response to the wonder and awe and generosity and overwhelming giftedness of creation is doxology. That's where the choir comes in. Doxology is this, this incredible capacity to abandon ourselves in exuberance in answer to God. So I have been doing a sociology of doxology, and I have been studying how different churches sing, and what is clear to me is that the more stuff we got, the less we can sing. So black churches sing up a storm, and white Baptist churches rock, and Methodists are almost as good. Presbyterians, you can't quite tell what verse we're on because we're mumbling. <laughs> I have a Presbyterian colleague who was in a Presbyterian church one youth Sunday, and the youth asked everybody to go like this. And my colleague said it was the first time in 400 years that a clerk had had his hands above his ears in church. And I belong to an Episcopal church where you pay people to sing for you. (laughs) 
But the book of Psalms, the book of Psalms is a script for the way in which Israel and the church and all creatures answer back to God with no reservation. So Psalm 148 says, Praise God, hail, praise God, storm, praise God, sea monster, praise God, porcupine, praise God, lots lost in translation, praise God, pineapple, praise God, let everything that has breath, praise God. You cannot do that self-abandonment with your hand on your portfolio. Or Psalm 104 is the great hymn of creation in the Bible. It starts out very big about the heavens and the earth and the waters. Under It's pretty scientific. That's okay. The waters under the earth. But then it gets more and more particular until you arrive and you remember that the Bible is an arid in an arid climate where there's not much water and it praises God for mountain streams and springs and brooks and flowing water that raises up trees and plants and then it gets more particular and it says you give wine to gladden the heart if you prefer grape juice wine to gladden the heart and bread to strengthen the life and oil to make the heart sing. These are the most elemental produces of creation, wine, bread, and oil. Isn't it interesting that those are the sacramental signs of wine and bread and oil to anoint the baptized and the dying? And then it goes on to say that the world works so perfectly about seed time and harvest and day and night that it says human people work all day and sleep all night and lie and sleep all day and work all night and nobody needs to get in anybody's way. And if you move on down through the psalm, you come to these verses that we take as a table prayer. Right in the middle of the psalm, the eyes of all, all human beings, all birds, all radishes, the eyes of all wait upon you, and you give them their food in due season, you open your hand, and you satisfy the desire of every living thing. So when we do table grace, we are acknowledging the generosity of the Creator, And then I will mention one more facet of this psalm. If you read on down further, it says that when you give your spirit, that's the usual translation, we live. And then the next verse says, when you withhold your breath, we die. Spirit and breath are the same Hebrew word, they're often not translated the same way, which is to say that we and all creatures and the earth depend on God giving breath, 
so that God, the creator, is like a great iron lung, like breathing out and breathing in. So it is the way in which Israel, in praise, acknowledges that we are not self-sufficient. And if you want to test it, try holding your breath. Because you have to let it out and you have to take in some more. So Israel at praise is trying to give its life back to God until you finally arrive at Psalm 150, the last psalm that reads like a love letter, praise God, praise God with timbrel, praise God with thigh, praise God with drum, praise God with flute, praise God with trombone, praise God with saxophone, praise God with clarinet, praise God. The reason I say it's like a clarinet, uh, like a love letter is that it's not about anything. You know, love letters are not about anything. They are just an attempt to send me through the mail to you. And when you get a love letter, I, maybe people don't write love letters anymore. They ought to. You turn it upside down and you look at it to make sure that you're getting all the juice out of it. So you can imagine when Yahweh receives Psalm 150 from us by way of the choir, that Yahweh turns it on edge to see, well, how grateful are they? How glad are they? Do they know what this is so good and so generous and so grateful between us? So the foundation of abundance is the church's conviction after Israel that the world belongs to God and is well supplied by God. And because of that, we have great need and desire to give ourselves back to God in exuberance. So what I want you to see is that the proper gesture of a theology of abundance is like this. It opens limitlessly, whereas the proper gesture of a theology of scarcity is always to go like this economically and politically and emotionally and liturgically and doctrinally until you just get tied up in a knot and you can't sing and you can't breathe anymore. So the church meets regularly to participate together in this counter-theology of saying that anxiety is completely inappropriate because we live in a world where there are lots of gifts. And the only other footnote I mentioned to this foundation is that, as you know, the creation text in Genesis 1 ends in Genesis 2 by saying God rested God had Sabbath. God took a day off. God was not anxious. 
God knew the world was reliable. And when we keep Sabbath, we may have a zone free of anxiety. My brother, who's a very anxious guy, told me he was giving up anxiety for Lent. <laughs> and then he said, I'm pretty anxious about that. <laughs> so here we are in Pharaoh's slave camp, making bricks for a coercive society that always presses us to do more and make more and earn more and more and more and more. And the founding story of our faith that we share with Jews is that our mothers and fathers left Egypt. They left Egypt on the way to the promised land in Exodus 15. They headed out into the wilderness. And what you need to know in the Bible is that the wilderness is a place of no viable life support systems. So they put their step into the wilderness in 16.1. They left in chapter 15. It's so nice that 16 follows 15. And by 16.2, second verse into the wilderness, they said, let's go back. Let's go back to the bread of scarcity. And they have a big argument. And the Israelites complained to Moses about, why did you bring us out here to die? And Moses complains to God, and it's just a big chain of bitching, bitching, bitching. Can I say that here? That's okay. <laughs> and Moses says to God, I don't know what I'm going to do. I can't put up with this much longer. And they back out of Egypt. They're looking at the pyramids and the supply cities and the bread of scarcity. And finally, they turn their back on Egypt and they look into the wilderness and the text says they saw... You don't need a microphone. They, they... This reminds me of my teacher, James Mollenberg. He, he was very... Is that all right now? Okay. All right, hang on. Get you right there. He was very dramatic in class. And one day he was lecturing on Mount Sinai, and he was holding up the two tablets, and he just lectured like that a while. And the secretary came and said, Dr. Mollenberg, you have to take a phone call. He said, hold these, please. <laughs> As I was saying before I interrupted me, The text says that they finally turned their eyes toward the wilderness as their destiny, and there they saw the glory of God. They thought the glory of God was resident in Pharaoh's Egypt, but it turned out that the God of the covenant was going to meet them in the wilderness. And after they prayed and griped and complained, God said, all right, uh, tomorrow I'll give you some meat. I'll give you some quail. I'll give you some water if you hit a rock. 
and you watch tomorrow, and they got up in the morning, and this fine, flaky substance came down from heaven, and they said in Hebrew, what is it? And the Hebrew for what is it is manna. So this bread is called, what is it? (laughs) They wondered about it, and it turned out to be Wonder Bread. I'm not making this up. They did. The bread, the bread is inexplicable. And you may think that's kind of a flaky story. But the truth of the matter is that the children of abundance trust their lives to narratives that violate enlightenment reason. Because according to enlightenment reason, there ain't no bread coming from heaven. But here is this story that says they gathered it up and some gathered a little and some gathered a lot and everybody had what they needed and nobody had too much. And Moses said, take all the bread for you need you need for today, but don't store it up for tomorrow. But they were thinking like Pharaoh. They thought they ought to get everything they could, and they gathered up more. And the text says it smelled bad, and it melted, and it got rotten, and it got worms. Any one of those would have done, but the narrative says all three. It melted, it smelled bad, and it got worms. Because you cannot store up the free gift of God's abundance. You got to get up tomorrow and pray for daily bread again. So evangelical faith is grounded in these kind of inexplicable wonders that bread is given exactly in the wilderness where there is no viable life support system. And the life of the church is grounded in inexplicable wonders in which God exhibits God's generosity in ways that we do not expect and that we cannot explain. And Israel is invited to be on the receiving end of the wonder. Indeed, Moses in chapter 16 goes one step further and says, oh, on the sixth day, I forgot to tell you, on the sixth day, you can gather up food for the seventh day because I don't want you working on the Sabbath even in the wilderness. Well, who would have thought that anybody could take a day off in the wilderness? Who would have thought there were enough resources to keep that Jewish festival day. When my oldest son and his wife got married, I said to them sort of gently, uh, you ought to tithe. And they said to me, well, we will when we have as much money as you have. (laughs) And I said to them, then you will never have enough money. You will never have enough money to take Sabbath. You will never have enough bread to rest one day a week if you are hooked in a theology of scarcity. 
So that's the founding narrative. And I want to tell you one place where it is enacted out in more or less a human transaction in the person of Elisha. Now, I don't know whether you've paid much attention to Elisha, but I want to tell you that First and Second Kings has 47 chapters, the whole history of Israel for 400 years, and it's really boring. It says this king reigns 75 years, and then he died, and his son came, and he was 16 years, and so on, so on, so on, so on, so on. It's like memorizing the presidents and the wars we've won, something like that. The amazing thing of 47 chapters, Elisha gets nine of them. It would be like you devoted one-fifth of U.S. history to Martin Luther King. It probably wouldn't be a bad idea. So this Elisha is a nobody. He's uncredentialed and he just appears. And he happens on this widow who can't pay her mortgage and she's about to lose her house because the bank is going to foreclose. And she's about to sell her son into slavery to get enough money to pay her mortgage. And the way the story goes is that Elisha says, no, 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 get some pots and pans because I'm going to turn on the spigot and you're going to get olive oil, which is a very valuable commodity. And the olive oil came and she got out all the pots and pans and she called all the neighbor women because it takes a village and all the neighbor women brought their pots and pans and they had more oil than they could ever have imagined and she cashed it in, paid off her mortgage, saved her son and lived on the oil supply. Do you know what Old Testament scholars say about that text? It's just a fairy tale. It's just a fairy tale because it doesn't meet enlightenment rationality. And surely you don't believe that gifts are given among poor people inexplicably. At the end of chapter 4, it says that he... Elisha came across some hungry people and he took a couple loaves of barley. Does this sound familiar to you? He just took a couple loaves of barley and he fed a hundred people and had stuff left over. You see, don't you, that the stories of Jesus are the retelling of the Elisha stories. In chapter 6, there was a war between Israel and Syria. Does that sound contemporary? I imagine they were fighting over the Golan Heights even then. But Elisha thought, how will I stop this war? And the text says, he served a great feast. And the Syrians went home and did not come raiding anymore. Because shared abundant food breaks the cycle of hostility. In 2 Kings 7, there is a famine 
And these two desperate women are having an argument about which one of them ought to sacrifice their son so that they could eat him and not die. They're so desperate. And they go to the king, which is kind of normal scarcity theology, and the king says, I'm not God. I can't give you any food. I don't have anything. And then in a very complicated story, they find food reported by beggars that has been abandoned by the, by the Syrian army and they bring all that food home and poor people eat and the price of food goes down so that poor people can buy food again. So it wasn't until I started thinking about food that it struck me that this whole cluster of stories about Elisha is all about food. And it's all about an economy of scarcity in which Elisha disrupts the economy of scarcity by the inexplicable acts of abundance that makes viable life possible for people who have no resources. So it occurred to me that every time we commit an act of abundance, we are jump-starting creation again. And it has been given over to people like Elisha and Jesus and Jesus' church to jump-start creation by breaking out of the theology of scarcity and enacting abundance in the world. So when you come to the New Testament, I already mentioned to you Mary's song about he will fill the hungry with good things. The first song in Luke is about food. And then if you read, for example, in Mark 2... It says that Jesus was criticized because he was eating with publicans and sinners. He was violating food taboos because good, holy people. It's like integrating lunch counters. Those kind of people should not eat where proper kinds of people eat. I don't know that you remember Joseph Laurie, this old freedom fighter. He's the guy that did the benediction for uh, Obama's inauguration, but he tells his story long ago when he sat in at a lunch counter where blacks couldn't sit, and he ordered chicken salad sandwich. And they made him wait and wait and wait. And finally the waitress came and said, I'm sorry, they won't let me serve you. We don't serve colored people. And he said, I didn't order colored people, I ordered chicken salad, thank you. (laughs) A theology of scarcity sets up all kinds of boundaries and barriers and gradations about who's eligible for what, socially, economically, liturgically. And Jesus is a transgressor who believes that God's abundance overflows and you don't need to set up barriers like that. And then you know in... Luke 14, he tells that parable 
of the great banquet in which the proper people didn't have time to come to dinner. So he invites the street people in because he says somebody's got to eat this lavish banquet that Yahweh is providing. So we have these stories of Jesus. In Mark 6, he was in, see if this sounds familiar to you, he was out in the wilderness, a place of no viable life support systems, and he came on this hungry crowd and he was moved with compassion. And the Greek word for compassion means his, his stomach churned. He was so upset when he saw these hungry people. This is a story where he takes five loaves and two fish. He took that. And then Mark reports that he took it. He blessed it. He broke it. He gave it. He took, he blessed, he broke, he gave. These are the four great verbs of our faith. These are the four verbs of Holy Communion. You listen for them next time you eat at the table. He took, he blessed, he broke, he gave. And as you know, he fed 5,000 people. Matthew says he fed 5,000 men plus women and children, for God's sake. And there were 12 baskets of bread left over, enough for the tribes of Israel. Wherever Jesus is, there's abundance. And then in Mark 8, Jesus says to the disciples, in case you weren't watching in Mark 6, I'm going to do it again. So he came across a hungry crowd in the wilderness, and he was with compassion, and he took what was available. Here there's a little variation. It says he took it, he gave thanks. The Greek word is eucharisto, from which we get eucharist. Imagine having a sacrament called thanks. That's what the eucharist is. He took, he thanked, he broke, he gave. And there were... 4,000 people, and there were seven baskets of bread left over more than enough. The evangelists are testifying that Jesus is God's wedge for opening up creation to abundance of food and abundance of resources for life. So right after that in Mark 8, The next paragraph, he's a teacher, so he takes his disciples aside. And he said, what do you think was going on there? And they still haven't made eye contact with him. So they're out in a boat. And he says to them, you people forgot the bread. Don't you know we're in the bread business? And the disciples say, well, he's just saying that because we forgot the bread. And then he asks them questions. Do you have eyes and do not see? Do you have ears and do not hear? Do you have hearts and do not... Can't you tell what's going on here? And like a good teacher, he figures out he's too far out in front of his students because he got a bunch of concrete operational students. 
that cannot think imaginably, so he retreats to safer questions. So he says, okay, class, back in chapter 6, when I fed 5,000 people, how many baskets were left over? And, of course, in confirmation class, there's always some bright kid. I know, I know, I know. Twelve, twelve. Good class. And right above this in chapter 8, 4,000, seven, seven, seven. That kind of student knows all the facts but has no idea what they mean. And at the end of the paragraph, Jesus says, which must be one of his saddest statements, he says, do you not yet understand? He says to his church, you don't get it, do you? You don't get the fact, the truth, the claim that when I come into the world... Scarcity and anxiety and accumulation and monopoly and violence are irrelevant. In Mark 6, there's a funny little verse that sits there all by itself. It doesn't seem to be connected with anything. And it says, as they could not, listen to this, they could not understand about the bread. They didn't understand that this was ample, abundant bread for the world. Bread for the world. They could not understand about the bread because their hearts were hard. Now, if I say to you their hearts were hard, who are you supposed to think of in the Old Testament? Pharaoh. Pharaoh's the guy with a hard heart. They couldn't understand about the bread because they were thinking like Pharaoh. They were thinking in a scarcity model. I grew up in a rural church in Missouri, the only church I ever knew that did this, at the end of the year, they published everybody's contribution. How do you like that? How's that, work? How's that working for you? <laughs> and I can, remember, I can remember as a kid in the 40s that there was one guy that gave $125 a year to the church. Nobody else gave more than 50 So I don't know about you, but I grew up where people were deeply committed to scarcity. And my dad was a pastor. He had to nickel and dime him about every little thing. But people who rest their lives in the truth of the gospel do not need to think in terms of scarcity. I heard an Episcopal pastor give a stewardship sermon and he said he was riding with a woman who was driving and she passed a street person there's a corner in Cincinnati where there's always a street person and the woman handed him a hundred dollar bill and as they drove away the priest said he said you know he's going to drink that up and the woman said I'm not on that committee he said I'm not on the scarcity committee 
Isn't that a good way to think about it? That Jesus has relieved us of our responsibility for the scarcity committee and has put us on the abundance committee. And the, the, the question in front of the abundance committee is, what are we going to do with all of this? How are we going to give it all away for the sake of the neighborhood? And that has all kinds of implications for public policy. Because we're now in a political mood in our country to be scarce about everything, which is crazy. It's crazy in this society. So I'll mention one other text, and then I'll sit down. In 2 Corinthians 8, Paul is a stewardship officer for the church in Jerusalem. He's trying to get money, get churches around the Mediterranean to send money to the Jerusalem church, which is now very poor. This is what uh, you get, come over from Macedonia and help us and all that kind of business. And he does a little Christology. He said, think about Jesus Christ, who, though he was rich... For our sake became poor, meaning the cross, in order by his poverty he might make many rich. Act like Jesus. Then he goes on to say, I don't mean you should be crazy with your generosity, but there ought to be a balance between what you share and what you keep for yourself. There ought to be a balance. And if you read on down to verse I think it's verse 15. He says about this offering for Jerusalem, some gathered a little and some gathered a lot and everyone had... It's a quote from the manna story. So what Paul wants to do is to get the church... He's a a hard-nosed kind of stewardship officer to get the church to think about its money in terms of the bread that comes trickling down inexplicably. I assume that some of you are like me. You're pretty well off. Some of you are better off than I am, some not so much. But people like us are seduced into scarcity about the way we think about our personal resources and about public policy. But but we are invited to a God who keeps jump-starting creation in new ways. So this is what I want to leave you with. I asked your pastor how often you have Holy Communion, and he told me, and you have it often enough and pretty often. I want you to think about Holy Communion as this incredible festival of abundance. About he took, he blessed, he broke, he gave, in which the loaves abound. There is more than enough. And every time we participate in the sacrament of thanks, 
we engage in an act of defiance in which we say the dominant narrative of scarcity is simply not true. You have to take a deep breath after that. We say it to our neighbors. We want our children to hear it. But if you're like me, you need to keep hearing it yourself and saying it to yourself because by verse 2, we always want to go back to the scarcity society. So Jesus is this great embodiment of God's generosity and the church is the embodiment of God's great gratitude. And we live in a subversion of reality because the dominant version is scarcity and our subversion intends to subvert our society. That leads me to the awareness that you share. The Christian faith is not about me and Jesus. Christian faith is not about how do I get to heaven with my to be with my loved ones. Christian faith is about the governance of God's abundance in the world that depends on the church to give itself away for the sake of the world. It is astonishing news.